Welcome viewers and listeners to the second episode of the new Pilgrim Faith podcast sponsored by the Davenant Institute. I'm Joseph Minnick and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Winfried Cordwan, who is a professor emeritus of philosophy and religion at Taylor University in Indiana. Uh, for the last several decades, Dr. Cordwan has been at the forefront of educating evangelicals about world religions and especially about the importance of understanding them well. In our, in our increasingly pluralistic world, wherein we're coming into contact with persons from all sorts of backgrounds, there's a, a lot at stake in our cultivating religious literacy. And doing that requires good guides. And personally, I wanted to talk to Dr. Cordowan because I found his work to be really helpful in this effort, especially in his insightful analysis of just precisely how Christian, our Christian faith relates to other faiths as well as how we might consider communicating the gospel to persons coming from various faith backgrounds. Um, among his many books, and I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to talk about these as we work through things, I have, I have a couple of them here, but he has this, this wonderful book, Neighboring Faiths, which is an introduction to uh, religions in general. He goes through, through so most of them in a general way, and he has this complementary volume called A Tapestry of Faiths, which is a more uh, in a way, if I could put it this way, Dr. Cordon, maybe a more thematic approach uh, to doing comparative religion. And then this especially wonderful volume, In the Beginning God, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, his, his book on uh, the case for original monotheism. Um, uh, Wynne, thanks so much for being with us here today. I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to lend us your gifts of wisdom on this crucial topic. Good afternoon, Joseph. It's an honor to be on your podcast, and I look forward to conversing with you over the next few minutes. Oh, thank so. you. <laughs> um, I didn't mean to mention this in my intro, but I, I gather that one of your hats, uh, if the wild uh, west of the internet is to be believed, is that you have a hobby as a sort of local folk guitarist and singer as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I was, yeah. I was just listening to, to Richard Thompson play Dargai this morning, uh, and found out recently that he's a, a Sufi Muslim, interestingly, uh, you know, a folk guitarist Sufi Muslim, so of double interest to you. So before we, we talk about anything else, let's, uh, let's talk about something really important, and that is if you, if you had to choose a go-to folk music artist, who is, your, who is your sort of bread and butter on the folk scene? Gordon Lightfoot, without question. Gordon, Gordon Lightfoot? Yes. Okay. And, yeah, he's still alive, still performing. <laughs> okay. Even though he must be around 90 years old now. Okay. We, when we came to the United States, I was 13 years old. And uh, at the time, there was a lot of interest in folk music. I mean, Peter, Paul, and Mary had number one hits on the top 40 radio stations. And uh, so I got caught up in that folk revival of the time, and I keep playing that kind of music, oh. some of my own songs and so forth. I perform every week on streetjelly.com, uh, Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern. All right. Street, streetjelly.com, Thursday nights at 9, if you want to yes. see... Uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Cordoan do his music, which I've heard some of, and it's wonderful, uh, oh, just, just lovely. Um, 
All right. Well, why don't we get uh, into the issues then, or the the stuff we are uh, the, the, this uh, comparative religion material that we wanted to discuss. Um, you know, the first thing I wanted to ask is, uh, you know, I gather that one of your goals in writing about religion is to train evangelicals to speak honestly about other faiths rather than in, you know, these sort of hasty generalizations. You know, most of us, I guess, I, I would gather, subsist on kind of old Sunday school stereotypes or or even worse, the, the misinformation of more ideologically driven apologists. But 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 why do you think that precision and accuracy here should be a, a priority for us? Uh, another way of asking that is, what's at stake, do you think, in, in failing to get other religions right? Well, it just has to do as much as anything with just understanding the people to whom we're trying to witness. And if we massacre what they believe in the process of trying to relate to them and uh, they see that as being insincere. Uh, you know, if someone from another religion approaches you and says that Christianity teaches uh, easy believism, that it doesn't matter how much you sin, you can just ask for grace and that's it, all your sins are forgiven. Now that's a you know, pretty common stereotype actually. Right. And, uh, you're going to be offended, possibly, by someone who comes to you and tells you that that's what you believe. And I think it works in the other direction as well. If I want to get a hearing for the gospel with my neighbor who's of a different religion, I should at least respect what he believes and listen to him or her. Uh, rather than just coming arrogantly with, I know you're a Hindu, so you're a pantheist, and I'm going to give you my argument against pantheism, and there you go. Right, this sort of pre-digested talking points, as it were. Right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let right. me quickly add to that, that most Hindus that I know are not pantheists, even though that's often described stereotype yeah yep. well it's one group among many but uh, most hindus are polytheists or monotheists of some sort and uh, anyway that's just one of the things that uh, one has to consider right i went to my first trip to singapore I entered Hindu temples thinking that I knew a lot about Hinduism. I had studied Vedantic Hinduism, Shankara, and the whole pantheistic aspect of it. And I walked into the temple and there was nothing of the kind there to see. I mean, how could it be? But there were statues of gods and they were being worshipped. And there were very obviously stories behind that. And so I realized if I want to relate to these people, I can put my Shankara to the side and my Advaita to the other side and start thinking in terms of the gods, lowercase g, 
in which these people place their trust. Right, right. Yeah, that's, re that's really interesting. Yeah, I guess, you know, part of the tension there is we, we tend to project our own maybe text centricity or something like this on a lot of other religions where the, the kind of where it's at for a lot of yeah. people is very much elsewhere. And yeah. a sort of folk, you know. Yeah, no, no religion sees their scripture quite in the way that we use the Bible. Right. There, for Hinduism, the truly sacred scriptures, the Vedas and the Upanishads, cannot even be understood by most people and aren't supposed to be because that's not one of the requirements of their caste. It's prohibited for them to study the Vedas if you're lower caste. Right. And uh, <clears throat> so you know, Hindus do not generally get together to have a Bhagavad Gita study Right. <laughs> Some do, but those would be the, you know, again, upper echelon professional elite kind of people. Right. Most Hindus uh, would learn about the stories about the gods and uh, the powers of the gods, not uh, the content of the Veda. Right. The Upanishads. Um, you know, one of your one of your trademark contributions to to recent evangelical scholarship, uh, and pre perhaps perhaps your 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 uh, your your most prominent trademark contribution has been to make a fairly robust case for this controversial thesis of original monotheism. For for our listeners, can you can you tell us what that that idea is in general and how it helps us understand world religions? Uh. Yeah, now I'm trying to figure out what you mean by fairly robust, but... Uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> super robust. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think it is fairly robust. Uh, the question is, how did religion begin? And of course, that's to some extent a theological question. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible teaches us that first there was God, God created human beings, God created human beings in such a way that they knew of him and communicated with him. Somewhere along the line of human history, uh, people dispensed with belief in God or shoved God off to the side and started to believe in more gods than the one God, in spirits and in rituals and trying to control the divine realm, and so forth. But there is still a remnant of the belief in God that you can find in, well, for example, in the monotheism of Christianity and Islam and, of course, Judaism, and in many of the current contemporary cultures, who have not progressed particularly on the material level, so whose culture seems to reflect a uh, less developed culture uh, and 
with those who apparently in some ways represent the ancestry of the human race, so to speak, they also hold to a monotheism, worship one God only, and uh, have relatively little magic or ritual or concern with spirits. So it starts out as a theological question, but then there is a anthropological answer to that question that what we believe in the Bible is demonstrable by looking at different cultures and different religions, looking into the history of, well, Islam obviously, and even Hinduism and so forth, as well as looking at cultures that are on a, uh, on a more original level, it would appear to how human beings first lived. Right, right. And, and of course, one of the, the, the big figures here is, um, is, is Wilhelm Schmidt, uh, you know, this, this 20th century you know, German anthropologist of Risen who wrote this religion, who wrote this, uh, I th what is it, 12 volumes? Uh, uh, or is it more than that? I think it's 12 it volumes. volumes. He was working on the 13th when he died. <laughs> this history of religion, you know, it's one of these projects that only a 20, you know, what these Germans can do, you know, this just, you know, extreme erudition. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, how, how did you first encounter Schmidt and what, what was it about his program, you know, when you first encountered it that, that, that was compelling to you? Obviously his, his ideas are complex and so it's, you know, not possible in the space of this video to say everything that he does, but, uh, you know, yeah. Well, I first encountered him not by name, I don't think, but simply the idea that he was promoting uh, when in Germany, in religion class, our Protestant teacher was sick. And so the Catholic religion ah. teacher held a class for that one day. You know, this was back when I was 11 or 12 something like that, and I was a school child in Germany, and we had religion instruction, and the dear uh, Pater told us about these tribes that uh, you go visit them, they won't say anything about it, but if you get to know them and get to be on more or less intimate terms with them, then they're going to disclose to you that actually they do not worship other gods or spirits. Actually, there's only one God. <laughs> he's the one to whom uh, they really direct their worship. Right. Well, I found that really intriguing. And, uh, then, because you know, I was just a kid, then I ran across the same idea in some books where reference was made to Wilhelm Schmidt. And uh, then when I started to teach world religions, of course, uh, you know, the books usually referred to him and dismissed him very quickly. And I started to read up on him and 
get acquainted with his ideas. Now, even there, it's very easy to misunderstand Wilhelm Schmidt. Uh, and by the way, there are short versions. You don't have to read the entire Ursprung. Uh, Not all 12 volumes, right. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's easy to misuse Schmidt's results <clears throat> until you really understand his method. Because just to say, okay, Wilhelm Schmidt discovered that there are so-called primitive cultures that are monotheistic really doesn't mean anything. Right. You can also find cultures that uh, have a lot of animism and spirit worship and so forth. So his major contribution was not just in repeating what we've learned from the Bible or what you could learn just by taking a survey of all the uh, uh, low, lower cultural groups, but by establishing the method by which you can actually distinguish between old cultures, older cultures, and truly ancient cultures. Right. And it's when he sorted out those cultures, the, the, the ones that really were on the lowest level of development, and they turned out to be monotheistic. That's when he really came through and uh, it's not just a listing then of monotheistic cultures, but it also has a justification why we should consider those cultures to be representative of the culture of human beings in their early stages. Right. One thing that I found attractive about your presentation in the book is that uh, it seems like the plausibility of, of Schmidt's program depends a lot on the, the, the plausibility of the, the kind of assumptions that all anthropologists have to make. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, one of those assumptions, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm summarizing this correctly, is that, uh, hey, ancient human beings weren't a whole lot different than you are, <laughs> you know, in a lot of respects, that a lot of, that a lot of anthropologists sort of, you know, sort of take a sort of primitive, primitivist approach to kind of ancient to ancient human beings and almost a kind of reductionist approach to the, the way human beings were in an ancient context. And one thing it seems like he's saying is, hey, uh, you, know, a, you know, an ancient life is not so different than your life, you know, the, the realms of concern and <laughs> what, why human beings do what they do, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah, uh, yeah we're, I mean, we're talking about homo sapiens. You know, I don't want to go back any further than that. Right. But homo sapiens, we know now that even back in the Paleolithic, Paleolithic era, we're talking about in uh, the uh, reckoning of the academy, which you may or may not accept, you know, 40,000 years ago, they already painted in their caves and possibly had religion. And we can't you know, draw any more inferences about that, even though a lot of people try. So we're talking about human beings like you and me. They mm. did not you know, have all of the culture that we have. 
and they might be better off without it for all that they know. <laughs> they had a culture, they had the same size brain, they had the same reasoning ability. They, they were not primitive savages who were only capable of a, quote, childlike faith. Well, no, let me take that back. They were capable of a childlike faith. Right. What's the most obvious question a child will ask when looking at the world around him or her? Yeah, where, you know, where did who it come from? It? Yeah. Who made it? The child is not going to think in terms of shamanism or uh, making sacrifices to the spirits or anything like that. But simply, who made it? Right. And so the, the notion of God is intrinsically tied to the notion of creation and for that matter, to a moral code to a set of rules. You don't lie, you don't kill capriciously, you stay faithful to your spouse and so forth. Right. That's all a part of that package. Right. Well, for, for this topic, just to the, to the listeners here, if you want to learn more about the, 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 the case for original monotheism, I highly recommend Dr. Cordwan's book, In the Beginning God. Again, a fresh case at the look, at the, I'm sorry, a fresh look at the case for original monotheism published by B&H Academic. It's very compelling. And you also go over sort of all the objections that have been given to Schmidt uh, and find, you know, most of them wanting. It's a very, very thorough and a, and a good book. Turning... Turning then to sort of kind of comparative religion questions, um, you know, in your, in, in, your, in your study of other religions, um, what have been one or two of the most surprising instances of kind of Christian sounding motifs in other religions? Um, you know, at a pop level, we sometimes say things like, you know, only Christianity, dot, dot, dot. But uh, what are some moments where you discovered, well, you know, not only Christianity, as it turns out, <laughs> you know, about well, various things? Well, one of the ones that really stands out is that Christianity, again, now we're talking about superficially, Christianity is not the only religion that has a doctrine of salvation by faith, by grace. Uh, there are two major instances that people tend to focus on. Uh, one is certain schools of Hinduism and the other is a particular school of Buddhism. For Hinduism, uh, there is the school that worships Rama, and that has divided itself into the cat school and the monkey school. Now, that's based on how much does a baby of either species contribute to being carried by the mother. Okay, for the monkey, the baby monkey has to climb up on mom's back and hold on. Otherwise, it'll fall to the ground. Right. For the cat school, the kitten doesn't have to do anything. The mother takes him in his mouth and carries him. Right. Okay, and so that school 
teach us that uh, we do not have to do anything to earn Rama's grace. In fact, uh, God loves our sin, and mm. so he, he saves us, sin and all. And uh, so mm. we have access to uh, escaping the cycle of reincarnation and state of bliss called nirvana. Right. So forth. Now, I already gave away a little bit of the problem with that, that it's not really like Christianity. Right. Because there is a difference between grace and indulgence. And, uh, right. Right. And I, and I want to say one other thing you sort of pull out in, in, a, in a tapestry of faiths is that uh, it's also not quite the same concept of salvation. Right. Uh, you know, that, and that's an important uh, distinction as well. Yeah, I mean, it's totally not the same concept of salvation. I mean, salvation for us is to, when we die, we go to heaven, but really simplistically, we're going to be with God in eternity. We only have one life in which we make our decisions. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Hinduism, the whole point is to escape the cycle of reincarnations. Right. If you go to heaven after you die, you get a vacation, so to speak, and you have a time of bliss. You may even be reborn as a god for a while, but eventually, unless you receive enlightenment and uh, liberation somehow you're just going to go on and on and then salvation is uh, breaking out of that cycle right i wanted to mention then the other school that seems to be teaching grace is pure land buddhism at least oh. one version of it and uh, again you have uh, an idea that uh, you don't have to contribute to your salvation. In fact, you can't contribute to it. But that uh, this time a Buddha has created a paradise for you. Mm. And if you have faith in that Buddha, Amitabha, then uh, you will be in his paradise and uh, various versions of that, for some of them, uh, you will just stay there. And for others, uh, you will, inside of the confines of the paradise, you will then be able to achieve enlightenment and then uh, move on to nirvana, the state of what? Well, non-existence or at least no suffering uh, we don't have any attributes for it supposedly but right. what you couldn't accomplish in this life you would then be able to do so in the paradise of amitabha right that's really interesting um uh, you know a sort of binary piggyback to that then would be to ask um, 
what what has stood out to you that that actually kind of remains very distinctive about Christianity in your study of other religions? I would I assume that as you're doing this kind of comparative approach, you wind up saying seeing, hey, there's there's certain things in Christianity that are very peculiar, you know, comparatively. And I wonder wonder what stands out to you as prominent, you know, from that from that angle. Yeah, if you you know read, if I may make my own plug. Yeah. The tapestry of faith. You know, I go through a number of topics, and in each case, we're talking apparently the same language, but when you really look at it, there are serious differences between conception of God, uh, morality, sin, atonement, and so on. Now, one of the most basic distinctiveness of Christianity is that uh, Christianity lives or dies by its historical foundation. Hmm. I mean, take Islam. Hmm. Muhammad taught it. And I don't want to denigrate his status as the founder of the religion. But he himself said that prior to him, there have been many other prophets who taught the same message. So now a Muslim would say that Muhammad is the seal of the prophets and he was the prophet for all of humanity and so forth. But the message already was there and could have been accepted because uh, it was already given by the other prophets. And theoretically, in that case, Muhammad would not have been necessary. If the same message had been already disseminated, he would not have needed to come and give what he Mm. thought were revelations from Allah. Same thing with Buddha. Uh, The Buddha lived in the sick, century BC, and he taught his message. But a part of the message was that there were other Buddhas in the past and in the future. And so theoretically, again, without wanting to denigrate what he did, still, uh, uh, he was not essential to Buddhism. Other people could have, and according to the mythology, did teach the same thing. Christianity, without the historical events in the life of Jesus, would not make any sense at all. Right. I mean, Jesus held up a standard of righteousness that nobody really can adhere to consistently. And he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, to me, that says that when Cordon will not enter the kingdom of God. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, there are other verses like that. But what makes the difference is not just that he taught that, but 
he knew that Wincor would fall short of that standard. And so he died on the cross for me as a substitute for the penalty that I would have had to pay for my sin. And so the cross has to be a genuine event in history as the resurrection, as you know, the life of Jesus that preceded those events. And so in, in that sense, Christianity is in a totally different ballpark from some of the other religions. Jesus, his life and work were essential. At the same time, Christianity has a liability there because if it were possible to disprove that Jesus existed, that he died on the cross, that he was resurrected, then Christianity would be nonsense. Yep. Yep. And it's a, you know, it's a vulnerability that Paul seems to recognize quite overtly, you know, if Christ mm -hmm. hasn't been raised from the dead, then, you know, let's have a party, <laughs> you know, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's very, that's very helpful. Um, so we've talked, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of generally about um, uh, uh, comparative religion in a sense. And one thing that would help us, uh, one, one way in which we can get specific uh, is to talk about, you know, an especially sensitive topic in our, in these last few decades. And that's about the, the subject of Islam. Um, you know, we, we're, we're living in a world where we're increasing contact with, with uh, Muslim neighbors um, and it's a religion where there's a lot of press, obviously, but maybe not a lot of understanding uh, and a lot of different voices saying, you know, kind of claiming expertise on it. Your treatment of it in Neighboring Face, there's, you know, two chapters. Uh, they're really, really helpful. But as a kind of a first gesture toward wisdom here, what are, what are you, when you look at kind of the evangelical conversation about Islam, what is the most kind of general thing you think needs to be said to evangelicals when we're approaching the topic of, of studying Islam in particular? Well, not just evangelicals, but everyone. The number one point to recognize in encountering Islam is that Islam is never fully established as a religion in a location until you have the Islamic community, which is a political unit. Mm. Now we can talk more about that, but uh, that's, you know, I want to shout that from the rooftops for people to understand that Islam is never just somebody's religion in the way that it is possible for many other religions. I'm an American citizen and, and I vote along certain lines and so forth and I'm a Christian. But my being a Christian doesn't necessarily have to do anything with my political goals. And you know, I know that there are people who disagree with me on that. Sure. But Christianity is not a form of government. Christianity right. is not. It underdetermines that, in a sense, you yes. could say. Yeah. Yes. yeah. But uh, in Islam, it is essential to have true Islam that there is the Ummah, 
the community. And so Islam will be self-governing and there is room for Christians and Jews, but uh, you don't have Islam completely until you have the Islamic State as well. Right, and this is right. Um, uh, and, and that does actually help us get at, because, because you know, on the one hand, a lot of, um, you know, some commentators on Islam, you know, make this point, but then it brings you to, but then it brings the conversation somewhat naturally then to this, this, uh, you know, this controversial doctrine of jihad, obviously, mm. and, a, and a lot's been written on this, both in the direction of kind of historical and theological whitewashing, and also in the, in the direction, arguably, of kind of reductive scaremongering. Um, and so for our listeners, um, I'd highly recommend uh, Dr. Cordwan's treatment of it in neighboring faiths. You have a whole chapter on this. Uh, but but for, for our audience, in, in what ways do you think we risk uh, kind of errors in both directions, either d- domesticating uh, kind of traditional Islamic teaching about this or, or perhaps projecting on it uh, in, a, in a more sinister way? Well, you know, you... If you read the Quran, if you read the Hadith, there's no question but that there is something intrinsic to Islam that makes it militaristic. And uh, without now bringing out some kind of stereotype, you, you can't totally dismiss that from Islam but you can also exaggerate it, and uh, certain Muslim groups have done that. Uh, now, Islam makes it very clear, or the Quran makes it very clear, that you may not be converted by the use of the sword. Okay, in Surah 2, I think it's 256, I'm not sure now. It says that nobody should be converted by the threat of execution. Mm. But that doesn't mean that the use of the sword is totally ruled out because you have to use the sword in order to defend the ummah, the community. And uh, the establishment of the community legitimizes the use of violence. So if a Muslim lives in a country, let's say, where uh, there are, he may not be the only Muslim there, and their rights to practice Islam are abridged, then is legitimate to use force and to establish an Islamic government so that Muslims may be able to practice their faith freely. And so that's a jihad and some people would say it's a that's a war of aggression. It's not just defense, apparently, but right. if you look look a little closer, then 
it is defense of the people who are being oppressed and are kept from fulfilling their obligations as Muslims. Right. And, so, and I think, oh, go ahead. I'm, I apologize. Go ahead. Because there are many faces to jihad. Mm. Now, uh, any number of books written by Muslims and I've heard any number of speeches from Muslims, they just uh, pretty much deny the early history of Islam. The stereotype Islam was promoted by the sword. Islam grew uh, through aggressive wars and so forth. Now, I don't want to deal with that so much right now, but the thing is, uh, though there are those Muslims who deny that, there are also Muslims who say, yes, that's the way Islam was spread. And one of our biggest errors is that uh, we do not pursue that course any longer. We shouldn't deny it, we shouldn't be ashamed of it, but we should go on doing what they did. Right. And so you have the uh, the aggressive jihadist movements that uh, are actually uh, saying that uh, if you don't aggressively promote Islam, and yes, there will be loss of life and violence, you're not really fulfilling your mission as a Muslim. Right, right. And, and I think one of the things you talk about in, in neighboring faiths, and, and I might be mispronouncing this, but is the, I, I'm not sure if you're, you've coined this term or if you, or if you use it as a helpful summary, uh, the neo-Karajites. Uh, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you say that? Is it Karajites? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, as a kind of this, this is maybe the tradition to look at to sort of see when you when you look at sort of modern Qutbism or Wahhabi movements and this sort of thing that this is perhaps the kind of seed form in sort of Islamic history of the maybe the jurisprudence that gives rise to what what later what will later be kind of uh, kind of modern jihad doctrine something like this. Yeah, the uh, neo parajites are well they get their name from a group that arose in the early years after uh, Muhammad when the division between the Shia and Sunnite was developing and the Karajites were a group that said what in the world is going on here? You're starting to talk about the leadership, the caliphate of uh, Islam as though it were a monarchy. Questions, can a son inherit that from his father? Or is it based on how much power a man has? As far as the Karajites were concerned, by the time that you get to the third uh, <clears throat> uh, successor to Muhammad, Islam was no longer being practiced by most Muslims. 
Mm. And uh, they said the, the most pious man, even if he's just a, uh, a servant boy or a slave, he should be the caliph, mm. just to make that point. And so they said, everybody else is wrong. They're no longer Muslims. We must treat them as infidels because that's what they are. Right. And then neo-Karajites are those who carry that same message. And then there are still distinctions among those. And right. One of the most uh, uh, radical, but also very prominent writers who promoted that idea was Said Kut. Yeah. UTB. And the Kutbites hold that there is no Islam right now, period. Mm. Because all of the uh, so-called Islamic states are really secular states. And all of humanity is enslaved because there are these non-Muslim governments. Now, they take the verse that says there shouldn't be any conversion by force and say, but that presupposes, I mean, no force means more than somebody not having the dagger at your throat. But right. It presupposes that you are free and are able to make a free decision without any coercion. And that's not possible in contemporary culture. Mm. Right now, we need a world in which all people are free and will no longer be bound by the enslavement to governments. Mm. So all governments must be abolished sooner or later. And then we must work towards establishing a state in which the, uh, the Hadith and the, uh, the Quran are the only uh, authorities and uh, there is no human government. And only when there is that kind of Islamic state without conversion can a person really make a free decision to become a Muslim or not. Interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's spooky is what it is. Is, is it proper to hear um, kind of um, kind of echoes of Marxism in there? Because I want to say that uh, Said Kutba uh, was, a, was a reader of Marx and I want to say in um, uh, Iran, actually, in the in the reign of the Ayatollah, there was some of his cabinet members were, and I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, sort of be apologetic about Mar you know Marxism scaremongering or anything, but I'm curious uh, how much you think that that uh, you know so that fusion of intellectual traditions plays a part in uh, in, in the development of his of his thinking. Um, Just the idea maybe, of sort of the thinking maybe, in terms of the arrest. The eradication of governments and such, you know, sort of imagining this moment where sort of governments are gone and, uh, you know, this kind of emergent, uh, almost eschatological state of, you know, pure, mm -hmm. sort of pure Muslimhood or something like this. It's an interesting, 
There may be there may be some superficial resemblance, hmm. but I would say in terms of influence, uh, Marxism on radical Islam may be a tenth of a percent. Okay, <laughs> okay. I'd, so he was more I'd, a reader of Marx than a, an appreciator of him. <laughs> I mean, they they are not the same thing. And see, that's what got uh, U.S. foreign policy in a bit of trouble. Now, you mentioned Iraq and Iran and the Ayatollah. And uh, you know, at the time, I was listening to the radio, reading newspapers, watching TV, and there was Henry Kissinger, the world's smartest human being, Secretary of State under Nixon, and he kept insisting that there must be Marxists. Uh, it is not possible for the revolution to be successful unless there are Marxists coming down from Russia, from the Soviet Union into Iran. Ah. And see, that's why I said what people need to understand is that uh, Islam is a political ideology on its own. Right. That you don't have Islam unless you have the Islamic State. And it didn't need any Marxist influence mm. or anything like that. The Ayatollah was in the minds of many Iranians, the head of state. Right. Uh, right. There, there was nothing of Marxism in there, nor is there in the uh, in the current uh, jihadist Muslim ideology. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I've seen I've seen a couple people make the connection, so it's interesting to hear. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting point. Yeah, that you know they they're. They're perfectly uh, able to to do revolution on on their own. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, um, another, you know, another thing that comes up in the discussion of Islam, uh, uh, and I guess we could sort of pair Judaism in here as well, is is sort of this question of whether or not uh, all, especially all the Abrahamic faiths, and maybe maybe even some of these more philosophical, maybe Neoplatonist, you know, uh, you know, monotheists, whether we all worship the same God. Uh, and I gather that part of the difficulty in this is that we might not even we might not even be asking this question in the same way that our theological ancestors did. Um, you know, I think a lot of the church fathers had a kind of yes and no answer, but I think it's possible because they're they asked the question on a number of different registers. And I, uh, you know, evangelicals of my parents' generation, I think, tended toward an unqualified no, and uh, evangelicals of mine, uh, I think, tend toward an unqualified yes. And so I'm curious how you how you would think we should ask and answer that question. Well, we need to qualify it. Yep. And uh, we need to make sure that the qualification makes sense. Uh, there are two very strong lines coming together here. I mean, on the one hand, there's no question in my mind that historically, Islam is a succession 
of the original monotheism hmm. that uh, it continued and uh, you have a group called the Hanif in Mecca, those people who did not worship all the gods in the Kaaba, but worshiped only Allah, the one God. There were Ebionite Christians. Ebionite Christians are, well, you and I might not call them Christians, but they said they were Christians, but they did not believe in the deity of Christ. Mm. Christ was just a human being. And uh, they were present on the Arabian Peninsula at the time. In fact, there's some speculation that maybe his uncle or even his first wife, Khadija, came from an Ebionite Christian background, mm. which would shed light on the idea that uh, Muhammad always promoted that Christians should abandon their belief in Christ as God. Now, to me, that sounds uh, contradictory, but he, if he was thinking of someone in the Ebionite tradition, then that makes sense. I mean, they were heretical Christians, but at least you can have a picture of how you can be a Christian without believing in the deity of Christ. So my point is then that uh, very clearly there is a line going from God, creation, and the persistence of monotheism right to Muhammad. So in that sense, Christians and Muslims worship the same God who has, you know, on the basis of historical descent. But if you look at the attributes of Allah, those are very different from the attributes that Christians ascribe to God. In fact, you know, much of the Quran is written as direct speech from God mm -hmm. to Muhammad by way of the angel. And so a lot of it is in first person plural, God speaking. And God or Allah in the Quran very specifically denies that Christ was God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the vicarious atonement of Christ for our sins. Right. And so if Allah denies those things, and God, as we Christians know him, say that those are specifically attributes of God. Right. That uh, God that Jesus is God, second person of the Trinity, that Jesus died for our sins, then conceptually, we do not worship the same God. Right. I mean, and this is true also for the other examples of remnants of monotheism. 
uh, Islam is not there by itself, but you know, just because they're monotheistic and have retained that root does not mean that therefore the attributes are the same. Right. They're not. And so I can't worship Allah as the Quran depicts him. No, I can worship Allah in the sense that it's the only really applicable word for God in Arabic. So if I talk to a Muslim, then yeah, I worship Allah, but it's Allah as revealed in the Bible and not as revealed or written about in the Quran. Yeah, yeah, my sense of a part of the confusion when we kind of from the church historical perspective is that uh, you know, you have Muslims and Christians doing kind of natural philosophy. Yes. And so they're thinking about God as kind of occupying the same metaphysical space. Yes. But when you start talking about God related to, you know, the ordinary person as a, well, as a person, as a divine person, mm -hmm. well, then what you believe about Christ and what you believe about God's revelation is going to make all the difference in terms of, you know, you know, whether we worship the same God in that more robust and immediate yes. sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really helpful. Um, you know, another thing you've written about is, and this is a, you know, it's a pretty big dispute these days, is this kind of inclusivism versus exclusivism debate. That is, you know, sort of uh, who can be saved and how much explicit awareness of Christ is is necessary uh, for salvation to occur. Um, can you can you just say what you think is kind of the acceptable range of options for evangelicals here, and and where do you? Where do you land? I'm sure you've thought about this. I know you've written about it some in Tapestry of Faiths, and uh, you've probably thought about it for decades. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the the obvious limits are what the Bible teaches, and uh, the Bible is pretty clear that uh, first of all, it does make reference to original monotheism and persons like Melchizedek who worshiped God in the Old right. Testament. And then there are other people in the New Testament who knew of God. But in each of the cases mentioned, someone came along and taught them the gospel so that they could believe not just in God, generically speaking, but in Christ. There is just no room in either the Old Testament or in the New Testament that idolatry could be worship of God, that mm. somehow someone worshiping an idol implicitly worships God. Now, that's very disappointing to C.S. Lewis fans, <laughs> but I'm sorry. <laughs> I just do not think uh, that that's being taught in the Bible. Idolatry is forbidden. And uh, that's assumed in the New Testament as well. So there 
is a need for some kind of explicit faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, the, uh, the whole system of sacrifices and so forth was geared towards its fulfillment in Christ. Hmm. Uh, in the New Testament, you know, I could you know, quote the verses, there is no other name under which we may be saved. I am the way, the truth, of, and the life. No one comes to the Father by, by me. Uh, but even apart from those kinds of proof texts, uh, the whole story only makes sense if Christ's death and resurrection were the only way of reconciliation with God, which we receive by grace through faith. Mm. Now, as I said, uh, there are multiple examples in the book of Acts and uh, in the Old Testament as well with Melchizedek and so forth, that uh, if a person truly seeks God, God will send the message of salvation. Uh, and, you know, he can and he does. Uh, hmm. Taylor University, where I taught, has a very uh, interesting history in connection with a young African man uh, who took on the name Sammy Morris eventually. And uh, he was in Africa. Now, Africa has a fairly strong monotheistic uh, culture, and uh, there, there are tribes that are definitely more monotheistic than not. And uh, Sammy Morris really got interested in this god, and he heard that on the coast, there were missionaries and uh, that uh, they would know more about the one God. And so he made a long journey to the coast to meet up with those missionaries and they told him more about God and the Holy Spirit, which he was very interested in and about Jesus. And then he eventually wound up at Taylor University, which at the time was Fort Wayne College, and uh, he was a big influence then on all the, uh, the people at the college who were just amazed by his faith. And uh, you know, to this day, his grave in Fort Wayne, people come there and uh, put on flowers and so forth in his honor. So my point is to this day, or at least to the previous century, there are plenty of stories where people pursued their basic knowledge of 
there must be a creator. I'm going back to the child's question, who made all this? Right. And because they were sincere in asking it, God sent angels, human beings, right. circumstances and so forth, that they would find God on the, the grounds that uh, we must find him. Right. Because we cannot save ourselves. Right. And I suppose there's probably things to be said there, like we don't, you know, we're not exactly aware of how far the gospel message has gotten in a lot of, in a lot of contexts, you know, so uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, spread of the message, perhaps, that we're unaware of, you know, in the history of the Christian church. And uh, I'm curious, how would you, how would you handle something like um, prayer? Um, Do you think that, you know, sometimes people would say, you know, does God does God hear the prayers, you know, of people, uh, you know, uh, because, because on the one hand, we tend perhaps to think of him, you know, and this is just sort of a piggyback on the previous question, we tend to maybe to think of prayer as like a, um, uh, you know, whatever your sort of official religion is, you're praying to that God. Uh-huh. And yet there's maybe this other dimension of prayer that's just sort of, you're immediately related to the one God as a human being. Uh, and sometimes, especially even atheists, right? <laughs> when they're in a crisis, yeah. sort of mm-hmm. cry out into the ether. Uh, and I'm curious, uh, you know, would you say that um, those are, you know, we can say that, you know, when people are sort of praying to the the creator, you know, whoever he is, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, we could say as evangelicals that God hears those prayers. Yeah, I have to say that. I mean, that's... <laughs> Now, God, you know, you never know exactly how God is going to answer prayer. Right. But uh, on our Hindu evangelistic website, karmatograce.org, we have testimonies of people. Again, it's the same thing as the story of Sammy Morse, who just realized that there was a God. Mm. did not know anything about him or would have thought of him more in terms of their religion. Uh, But God answered their prayer because it was a sincere prayer to Mm. not the idols and not through ritual, but a sincere heartfelt prayer. As I'm sitting here thinking I'm uh, a Sikh or formerly a Sikh woman comes to mind who gave her testimony at a meeting in India. And she grew up within Sikhism. And uh, so uh, she worshiped God and revered the first guru, uh, Guru Nanak. And uh, then when she started to think about God, it it was obviously, given her background, the face of Guru Nanak uh, that she saw in her mind. Right. And that's to to the God to whom she prayed, but she also realized that, you know, there was much, much more to God Mm -hmm. than either the person or the teachings of Guru Nanak in Sikhism, 
Hmm. And uh, then, uh, you know, she eventually found out about Christ and his atonement hmm. for us. And it's very interesting. I mean, so many people in India, particularly in China or Chinese cultures, when they come to Christ, there's a dream involved. Mm. Now, I'm skeptical about some of the accounts that I've read. Right. But uh, there are also some people who I don't think are making anything up, but who are relating a genuine experience with God in a dream that confirmed what they had heard or thought they knew. Right. Well, that's, then, that's really, that's really fascinating. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll have to, what, what is the name just for the listeners? You said there was this evangelistic website for, uh, for, for uh, Hindus. What, what is the name of the website again? Karma, as in what you would call fate or future. Karma, numeral two, grace. Okay. Or I'm not entirely certain that's still up, actually. Oh, okay. But uh, the Hindi version is still up, I know. Okay. But... Uh, Oh, fascinating. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up. Um, well, um, finally, and what I, what I hope will be a, a trademark question of this podcast, um, what, are, what are some of the things that you think are just under-discussed in the, uh, either in the evangelical church or just at large on the question of world religions? Uh, maybe one way of asking that is, what conversations do you wish we, we were having that we aren't having? <laughs> Uh, in general about world religions? Question is, how can we show love to people of other religions? Mm. If uh, we're talking about evangelism of Muslims, For centuries, Muslim countries were considered about as infertile a field for missions and evangelism as you could think of. Missionaries would spend a lifetime in a Muslim country and uh, show maybe just a handful of converts. At this point in history, the Muslims have come to the Western world and we try to ugly them out. Mm. And of course there are reasons, but I wish the conversation was more on how can we show them love? Mm. Mm. No, yeah, uh, that, you know, I'm not in any way uh, 
trying to soft pedal uh, the radical terrorists and so forth. But there's a lot of negative attitude that I pick up. Right. Right. And, uh, whether it's justified, well, yeah, but we are instructed to love our neighbor. Right. And our enemy, I mean. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there aren't no easy solutions socially and so forth. But I wish the Christian conversation would be more positive in that direction. Mm. And that the same thing applies to other religions as well. Uh, yeah, and in fact, I want to say part of what's really great about neighboring faiths is at the end of each chapter, I think what you try to do is sort of show uh, suggest ways, you know, creative ways that you can think about approaching people from this tradition and what, you know, uh, you know, sort of what could be offensive or non-offensive, you know, that yeah. sort of thing, you know, and that's, that's a really helpful conversation to have. Um, well, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us and giving us your wisdom. This has been really wonderful. And, uh, I think this will be a blessing to a lot of people. Um, uh, I'll just say then, um, Thanks, uh, thanks to everybody who's joined and listening. You've been listening again to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, uh, and I've been chatting with our delightful guest, Dr. Winfried Cordwan. I'm Joe Minnick, and I bid you farewell until next time. Goodbye. All right. Thanks.